and welcome to these audio didactic recordings from Project Echo, West Vic PHN Hub. All right, well, let's get underway. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to Project Echo, COVID-19 Echo Network, Series 9, Session 1. It's Thursday, the 5th of May, 2022. Welcome back to this uh, Echo Network. Now, this session is titled um, Packs of It on the PBS, How to Safely Prescribe and Access. Um, and I'd like to begin with an acknowledgement to country. We'd like to, and um, I wonder if you could pop that up. Um, so would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waterways from which we're all zooming in from today. We recognise their diversity, resilience and the ongoing place that First Nations people hold in our communities. We pay respects to elders past and present and commit to working together in the spirit of mutual understanding, respect and reconciliation. We support self-determination for First Nations people and organisations and we'll work on closing the gap. And a reminder to always ask that question, do you identify as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander? Um, well, good morning and welcome back to Project Echo. Echo Breaks always give us a bit of pause to reflect upon just how much changes week to week in the context of a pandemic crisis. Um, and in the last four weeks, while it has been slightly quieter, it has given us, um, you know, it does bring a lot of changes. There has been a lot of changes in terms of how we live, how we care for patients and the options for communicable diseases management. So the oral antiviral agent Paxlovid, otherwise known as Numatravir plus Ritonavir, uh, by the way, it's 300, 100 to be prescribed BD for five days within the first days of five days of symptoms, came onto the PBS this week without much in the way of a fanfare. Uh, so in the same way that access to vaccines improving made a big difference to our work lives, this new technology and how it's accessed should prove to be another game changer for how we care for our people with COVID in our communities. However, its adoption and uptake will come with bumps along the road as we get our heads around safe prescribing and access, and no doubt there will be systems issues aplenty along the way. So it brings me pleasure to welcome you back to our Knowledge Exchange community where we'll put all of these guidelines and um, principles into play as we come up with new models of care to, um, and processes to support equitable access to oral antiviral therapy in the West Vic region. So welcome back. Let's get underway. I'm Bianca Forrester, GP, and I'll be facilitating today's meeting. It's lovely to see you all. Thanks for, introdu thanks for introducing yourself in the chat. Um, and we've got a poll up. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the poll. So um, jump on there. Um, I'm coordinating uh, this meeting today with Gemma and Fee, and uh, thanks to Zach for continuing to take notes for our series. Um, you, the alerting outcomes for ECHO remain pretty well the same as when we started a couple of years ago. It's about um, disease prevention, screening, assessment and management, and um, we've broadened COVID out to communicable diseases now. Evaluation of respiratory symptoms and fevers, so it's really that of occupational health and safety, infection control management principles, and continuing cares, uh, care provision, uh, which also looks like catch-up care at this time. Thinking about our real-world experiences of new models in different settings and building those resources, supports and referral pathways, as well as uh, engaging in peer support and learning all right and this session today i think the outcomes oh no here we are what's on the agenda thanks nope oh sorry Gemma. so good to i love having you back but we're yeah it's so nice having you back on in the uh, command center um so session one discuss patient assessment and decision making in relation to oral antiviral therapy discuss pathways for accessing antiviral therapy and clinical support um apply knowledge about principles and practices to a case discussion about oral antiviral and we're going to all share this together so we'll go back up to the last one so what's on the agenda for today 
Um, well, it's really nice to see Kate Graham again, and um, she's our GP clinical editor for Health Pathways and the COVID clinical advisor for West Vic Pitch, and she's going to bring you a public health update and talk through the decision-making tool. Um, and Naomi is our COVID care pathways manager, and um, Naomi's going to give us an update of how the PHN is supporting um, some of these functions. Uh, we're welcoming uh, Dr. Nomathobi. She'll be here probably just about quarter to eight. She's an ID physician and um, will from Bowen Southwest public health unit um, and we'll be presenting on oral antivirals so we're going to give you the kind of practices first and we'll go back to some of those principles we're going to all reflect on a vignette because um well we didn't get a case this week i'd love cases from you for long covid so heads up we need a long covid case send it in to us please um, but we're going to think about well what if you had an 82 year old rack resident with SARS-CoV-2 whether you're in Horsham, Portland, Warrnambool, Ballarat or Geelong how would you assist this 82 year old to access antiviral medication so we're going to think through um, our pathways in relation to this uh, individual. And on our panel for discussion, Jeff Urquhart, Dr. Alison Miller, it's our GPLU team, but I'd also like to make mention, um, uh, we'll add into our panel today, um, Jenny Helsing, who's the GP um, specialist for the um, Grampians Public Health Unit. So we welcome Jenny as well. Um, and it'd be nice for you all to get to know Jenny for those of you in the Gramps region. All right, lovely. So I think that's it from me. I'm going to hand over to you, Kate. Good morning, everyone. Um, so in terms of just the updates, we've had a lot that's been happening over the past few weeks, mainly related to the pandemic orders um, that came through on the 22nd. Um, so with this, the ca uh, cases are still allowed, to, uh, sort of required to isolate for your seven days. However, what's not really been um, sort of communicated well in the community is some of the additional freedoms that you have now as a case. So you can leave to take your kids to school, which is fantastic um, if you're not getting out of the car and sort of those kind of things. So that's, that's no longer a requirement. Um, and you can exercise. If you are wearing a mask and you are only exercising with others who you are quarantining and isolating with. Um, the other big key change that most of us have noticed and probably had to come into contact with in some way in work is the requirements for household contacts. And they are now exempt from um, quarantine. If they do a rat test for five of the seven days, those rat tests have to be 24 hours apart. Um, you must mask in indoor settings and avoid sensitive settings. This is where there was some confusion because it sort of does include nursing homes and those kind of things. However, if you are a worker in healthcare, or a worker in aged care, then those sort of previous exemptions for returning to work still apply. Um, that's in a separate pandemic order. And those sort of um, requirements still require the consent of the worker and the workplace. Um, and they still have the additional things like making sure that you're wearing um, N95s, um, and that you are not having lunch breaks with other people. Social contacts um, are described as social contacts, but it now includes everyone who's not a household contact. So those kind of contacts, when you see them mentioned, they are the requirements for all types of contacts. We still have the workplace matrix for primary care that's being updated this week. So there may be some changes on that to sort of keep in mind. Um, and vaccine mandates still persist across um, the settings where they did previously. 
um, for working and workplaces. It's the vaccine mandates for people entering um, sort of hospitality venues as a consumer um, no longer apply. Um, vaccination, um, Naomi will go through a little bit more on this, but there have been some significant changes in the Atagi advice as well. So I'll leave that to her slide because she's got it nicely summarised. Um, influenza is something that I also wanted to flag because we are seeing that um, a bit across our community now. Um, and when we're talking about Paxlovid and the antivirals and the need to get things in in a timely manner, um, the influenza antivirals are even more time critical. They're a 48-hour time window to get them in. So I think the sort of takeaway from that is that in sensitive settings, so your residential aged care, or if you've got somebody at high risk for other reasons, if you're doing a PCR on them, um, put the um, respiratory viral panel in at the same time so that you aren't waiting till you get the negative COVID result before thinking about testing for it. Um, so I'll just go on to the next slide. So oral antiviral medications in practice um, is a real systems problem. And I think that, you know, we're one part of the system, but there are lots of other parts of the system. Um, so I think we can work on our own efficacy within the system, um, but we have to think about what other ways um, patients are impacted from the type of medication and the time to medication being the two key critical factors. Um, so I think that from a general practice perspective and primary care perspective, we need to make sure that all our patient details are up to date, that we know about their medications, that you're checking that each time that patients come in so that when they do become a case, you've got all that information to hand. Um, you need to sort of be able to quickly check drug interactions and quickly check contraindications. So this is about sort of making sure that before winter, your winter checkups with patients, make sure that they have had recent UNEs, recent LFTs, because they are some of their contraindications um, or need to sort of alter doses. And we'll go through a lot more of the clinical stuff when NOM comes on. The accessibility is a key factor. Um, now that Paxlovid is available on the PBS, this means that we need to sort of think about how we're actually going to get it into pharmacies. Um, and it's about having that conversation before you need to have that conversation with a pharmacy in terms of if they can get it in, how long their usual career process um, is going to take. Because if you're seeing a patient on day three or four, you want to make sure that they can actually start that medication in time. And I think that um, there is that thought, oh, if you have it within the first five days, that that is, you know, the key factor. It is the key factor, but getting it in sooner um, will um, benefit patients as well. And it'll also... Um, sort of mean that, you know, many patients um, that I've seen recently have actually been and become quite sick or required hospitalisation within those first five days. So I think that often, you know, thinking about it as like the five days, you've got plenty of time, um, getting it in sooner is better. Uh, the prioritisation is something that we'll talk about a little bit more. Um, but the sort of main things are how you seek advice or assistance when you're not sure um, Paxlovid is definitely more effective than Legevrio, but it's about making sure that your patients, um, that it's okay for your patients as well. 
So I might sort of see if Jenny's on at the moment because I know that she's not on for the whole session this morning. Um, just to have a chat about what um, what the system is with the um, GP liaison unit, uh, GP uh, public health unit. I always get confused with Grampians Public Health Unit because I see the GP at the start and think that it's GP, but it's Grampians Public Health Unit. So if you're on, Jenny. Absolutely. Look, I don't think we've ever had to know so many acronyms as we have over the last couple of years, and all of them are new and, and many of them are different. Um, so I'm Jenny Helsing. Uh, I was on ICO um, a little while ago uh, and back now. So I'm a GP. I work at the Grampians Public Health Unit, um, and we're currently undergoing a, a project to help support the uh, COVID clinical care teams that are providing the Victorian um, state government government COVID positive pathways. So that's the um, pathways to link people with uh, COVID illness in with a care team that's based within the hospital system. Um, and we've identified that there is uh, a lot of challenges through the, the region um, with linking in with primary care to that system. Um, and that's an issue through uh, throughout the whole of uh, Victoria. So uh, we're working with the care teams um, on that project to ensure that there are good linkages with general practice um, and that the pathways into that uh, hospital care are improved going forward. Uh, so I'd really welcome your feedback um, on that and any particular uh, challenges that you're facing in your local area. I'll put my email in the chat. Thanks, Shetty. Um, so I think we've put in some contact points there, but for contact points in general, um, the Health Pathways um, referral page is really up to date. Um, Naomi's been doing an amazing job sort of getting all the health services um, contact points. So I think for anything to do with COVID positive care um, or medications or things like that, the contact points are definitely there for you um, with lots of these sort of mobile phone numbers that won't be available publicly. So this is the prioritisation matrix for um, the state government um, run health services and how COVID-19 medications are prioritised. Because within a system, you get system overload. And I think we are at the point where not everyone who meets their sort of absolute eligibility categories are going to be able to be seen within a timely manner. And this is why it's so important to sort of have that confidence. Because we're going to see a lot of people in priority group three and four who may um, not be able to be seen um, in a timely manner within sort of the healthcare setting. So, or they may come to us not having had contact with um, the health services because they haven't filled in their survey, right? They haven't filled in the survey, all those kinds of things um, when they test positive. So while this blue line down the middle may shift in one direction or the other, depending on priority, it's really important to sort of think about um, who your higher priority groups are. Um, so I think as your risk is higher, there's definitely um, that sort of need to think about Paxlovid. Um, but I think in your priority groups three and four, the Paxlovid is still going to be a more effective choice, um, but it's sort of about that eligibility. And some of those eligibility categories um, differ slightly on the PBS. Um, you'll notice with this state one that it's got age over 12, um, that's because it's the um, eligibility for all of the COVID-19 early treatments um, 
recognising that the antivirals are only for 18 and up. So I'll just go on to the next slide. So this is um, something you may have seen, which is the Clinical Evidence Task Force board game. Um, and Bianca's kindly set this up into much more of a board game for us. Um, and it's, so if you've got an 82-year-old um, who's on day two of COVID, if they're vaccinated and in a residential aged care, um, how are you going to go through? And I think you go through at that start point, you sort of go through and you, at each point you think about yes, no, where they fit in. Um, and so thinking about this person, if you're immunocompromised or unvaccinated, you're going to fit into one of the higher priority categories. Um, but if you're up to date with vaccination, if you have um, other symptoms um, involved, if you've got symptoms and you've got risk factors, you may then end up um, at a point in the pathway where you're still eligible. So I think this is really confusing as a thing to sort of take in in small scale, but I'd really encourage all of you to have a look online. Um, the link is in there. Um, just so that you can follow it through. And so, what we're going to do, oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah, I was no, going to help going. you. I was going to say, yeah, because you get to this bit where at at high risk of severe disease based on age and multiple risk factors where you can, on the live document, click on the risk stratification tool. So for this blue person, while we come back to this in a moment, Gemma, we're going to click forward because what we would then do is go on to, if you click forward, yeah, there we go. This is our risk stratification tool. Which is um, a really beautiful visual. I really like this in terms of being able to sort of figure out where people fit. So she was 82 and there's our line for 80 and she's um, she's in the general population. Well, we don't know unless we gather her Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander data. So if she was Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, she'd go into that first group. If she's gen if she's not identified, identifying, then she's general population. And we'd look at the comorbidities, which are there, respiratory compromise, cardiovascular. So even if she's got a bit of hypertension and she's obese or she's got diabetes or renal failure, and hence why you need that UEC up to date, um, then she would have a comorbidity she's up to date um, and then risk depends on context frailty extent of comorbidity now she's in a rat kate so we're when we're kind of looking at that now dependent piece context frailty and extent of comorbidity how would you use that to influence decision making so i think that with patients who are in residential aged care um, that's definitely you know a risk factor in itself um, but people who are over the age of 75 that's considered as a risk factor in isolation on its own um, when you're looking at PBS categorization. So I think that those are two key things. And the other thing that I wanted to point out is on the comorbidities, asthma is definitely included. However, when patients are filling out the survey, um, the survey for COVID says lung conditions. Um, and so I think that for a lot of people, you require a reasonable amount of health literacy or sort of knowledge um, or sort of that interpretation of knowledge to think of asthma as a lung condition rather than I just have asthma. I don't have a lung condition um, because it's not set out as a single sort of word in that check down. So I think we're finding that a lot of people with asthma are actually missing out on um, being prioritised um, Mm -hmm. So, so Gemma, if you don't mind, so we've got done our risk, we've done the risk classification tool, which means we go back up. So we'll go backwards um, on the chart on our board game. 
And then we're going to roll the dice and we're going to roll now down towards, are we within five days of symptom onset? And the answer is yes, she's on day two. So are one or more treatments accessible and the patient has no relative or absolute contraindications? All right, this is the next part of our game, Kate. Um, so now we've got to kind of get to the next part of decision-making. So Gemma, we're going to roll down two slides. This is the bottom half of our board game, which I couldn't put it. Here we go. It's the fold out part. So can we access it and access it? And are there contraindications or drug interactions? And now Jeff and Alison, this is where I'd be keen for you guys to help us out because there's a few variables here, isn't it? I mean, this is, gets, is where I think, you know, you guys prescribing it in the hospitals have seen, you've often really engaged with pharmacy around these parts, haven't you? Yes. Good morning, Alison. <laughs> who's going first, Jeff? Yeah, yeah, yeah we have. Alison, well, just because we had a big chat about this during the week. <laughs> yeah, we so, Alison, yeah, Alison Miller, everyone, GPLU at Ballarat Health Service and also has been working in the um, Ballarat at Home team, prescribing packs of it now for a, a month or so, haven't you? Yeah. yeah, so so my role is in, in general practice and in the um, COVID team at BHS. So certainly Paxlovid is um, we prioritise for patients who are that highest risk, so immunocompromised, unvaccinated and older or multiple comorbidities using, using that prioritisation page. The first colourful chart that Kate put up um, and the... Uh, and, and in terms of how we make an assessment, so when we're talking to someone, we'll actually pull up their My Health record and look at their medication, you know, dispensing that's occurred, information that we've got from the GP, also information from the patient, see if we can access their electrolytes and liver function on the um, on our system or find out when they had their blood tests. And we early on actually engage one of our pharmacists. So we just gather that information. So often, as, as um, you might have seen in all of this, part of this stuff is, is, a, is a check for medication interactions. So um, we will then say what medications you're on. Are there any that are glaring that are contraindications? And, and fairly quickly, we'll actually engage one of our pharmacists. So we refer all that information to one of our um, pharmacists who then actually has a consultation by phone or telehealth with the patient to actually assess. Um, and because there's, we will do an assessment, but there's often other things that come out when the pharmacist goes and has a chat about other puffers, other over-the-counter medications, other things that they may have. Um, and then they provide some guidance to us as to what needs to happen. So because often these patients are older with multiple comorbidities, so there are often med significant medication changes that need to occur. So they may have a Webster pack, they may need their atorvastatin re removed, or um, these are all the things that may need to happen. So as we can see from this, it's taken me ages to tell you, it actually is very complicated. Um, and, and we're very fortunate to have um, pharmacists actively involved in this who can do it, provide information. We can then get back to the patient. We can, um, we've got really two people providing that information and that consent about what medic, um, advice or counselling about the medications. Um, and then we can proceed with um, provision of the medication. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, and so I was just, so we, so thanks, Alison. That was really great and helpful to um, go through those steps. I was just going to try and stick the drug um, interaction checker on there, but I can't do that live. I'll pop it in the chat because um, once you've gone through your contraindications, you do need to spend that time on those uh, interactions and um, and that's when you head now out. So in the live, um, in the form online, and Kate, sorry, help me out here. I'm not multitasking well. I've had COVID over the holidays. Never went on my hike. It was no, brilliant. and okay. my brain's not working because I've got COVID now. Now, oh, <laughs> no. 
Um, so, I you yeah. can't tell me we're not in a wave right now. We're getting practical experience yeah. here. So, so while you're trying to get it up, because again, technologically, that's always my <laughs> tricky thing is having too many tabs open. Um, the interaction checker is really good where you can put one, the you can put the Paxlovid or the, the Maltrovir Ritonavir on one side and then can keep adding the medications on the other. And it just comes up with information. And certainly ones that are red, you know, it's like, okay, well, look at this person. And and fairly quickly we can, well, no, none of it's quick. Fairly, we're, we're becoming practised at when you look at some, um, an older patient saying, well, is this something that we're actually going to be, is it a medication we can stop? Um, is it a medication that we can stop safely for eight days or is it not? Um, and they're really the questions that we need to ask. Um, I'm, I continually reflect on the fact that this is very difficult to consider in a 15-minute telehealth consultation with your COVID-positive patient. So it's making me think it's like we need a handy kind of common drugs piece so we can do a bit of a preliminary yay, nay, mm. okay, let's progress now the next part of the equation. And, and, and then I think there's a much more detailed um, pick over. Um, yeah. So I guess at this point, um, I just want to introduce everyone to Peter Fell. Peter Fell is um, lead pharmacist at um, UFS Dispensaries. And thanks for coming this morning, Peter, because I was really interested as to how this looked at your end. Um, what what Alison and um, Jeff have been talking to me about has just been that relationship that they as GPs have had with their pharmacists uh, in the hospital setting. And it made me think, well, how do we bring this model of care to life in, in, in community? Uh, it, you know, we do need to have obviously a really good relationship here. These drugs are, there are a lot of contraindications and safety um, concerns, but also we're working with a new drug. So, um, yeah, well, you know, how are we going to bring what, what Alison said to life in community. So, Peter, thanks for coming. Um, we'll move to the next slide, Gemma. Um, so there's a bit of interactions and there's some, yeah, so who's dispensing it? At the pharmacy end, what's happening with um, now these new drugs, Paxlovid and Molnupiravir? Um, I'm assuming that was directed at me. Yeah, sorry, Peter. Hello. Yeah. Sorry, I did introduce you. Um, yeah, thanks, Peter. So what's happening <laughs> at the pharmacy end around Molnupiravir and um, Olegevrio and Paxlovid? It's, look, uh, obviously it's, you know, one of the suite of antivirals that we deal with from time to time. Um, it's uh, one of the newer ones. A lot of the pharmacies you'll probably find won't be ranging it. It is a relatively expensive drug. It's somewhere north of $1,000 a unit. So a lot of the smaller pharmacies may be a little bit reluctant to put it onto the shelf just in case, so to speak. Uh, I had spoken with Jocelyn at the hospital a couple of weeks ago and she'd given us a heads up that it was going on to PBS and then they were going to back away from supply through the hospital chain. So we've made provisions now to stock decent quantities of it into the 24-hour pharmacy on Sturt Street. Fantastic. That's obviously, that's obviously not necessarily going to help anyone that's based out of Ballarat, but um, in general terms, uh, we, I think we're keeping somewhere around 10 or a dozen units there and it's usually able to be replenished within about 24, if not 48 hours. So I would hope that, uh, you know, whatever demand gets directed that direction from throughout the Ballarat region, we should be able to cope with. I probably, while we could stock it at all of the pharmacies, uh, we at the moment are probably facing a, well, not probably, we are facing a fairly severe work short, workforce shortage, which I'm pretty sure everybody else is grappling with as well. So 
I think we've made the decision that we'll probably just range it at that pharmacy only at this point in time. And that way it lets me keep much better control over the, I guess, the um, ability of the pharmacists that are staffed, staffing there to be 100% on top of the Paxlovid requirements and, you know, do a really thorough screening with all patients before it goes out and, um, you know, hopefully avoid any issues. Yeah, great. So, okay, two things. I think this is a really interesting model and I'm really keen to hear how this goes. So I'd, be, I'd love it if you, um, if we can keep in conversation with you to see how this is working because this is, in a sense, you're piloting something that I guess we're wondering about rolling out across the region. Um, and so, because in my mind then, if you're able to and have the capacity to stock that, it sounds like you'd be able to kind of courier it over to your other uh, dispensing sites um, within a region. So you kind of, in a way, describing a hub and spoke model within your pharmacy network. Uh, very much so. We Brilliant. have we have drivers on the road. Certainly Monday to Friday, we have drivers on the road every day, so we can very quickly dispatch it from Sturt to any of our other locations. Uh, Brilliant. Very easily. Yeah, and so it sounds like also then you're enabling a, your workforce to come on board. Uh, in in a way, you're enabling a process where your pharmacists will become confident in the dispensing responsibilities. <laughs> Yeah, look, it is a little bit of a niche product in terms of the restrictions, particularly around the, um, the, I guess the the drug interaction side of the equation, and you know my staff are probably like any um, any workforce. We have some highly capable staff, and we have some that are probably not as confident with what they're doing. Sturt tends to, the 24-hour pharmacy tends to be the melting pot for everything that's weird and wonderful about pharmacy. So the staff that are there are generally, um, you know, our better staff, very well briefed. And if there's specialty or specialist uh, knowledge or training that's required, that's where we normally tip things in first. And then we'll gradually um, trickle that out to the other locations if we need to. Yeah, so they'll kind of get the, the thought processes going and think about all the mm-hmm. pitfalls and traps. And, I mean, I guess the thing we I, would, I was interested in is, you know, on the one hand, we've got this um, responsibility around prescribing, but you guys have responsibilities around dispensing. I guess the key piece I want to, um, I'm wondering about from you, and I know you, you can't answer this necessarily, maybe you can answer this uh, at a strategic level or, or a legislative level, but can, you know, my GPs be confident that if they've missed something like that over the counter antihistamine, that that might be picked up at the pharmacy end? I would certainly hope so. There's um, there's a legal precedent um, around that relationship from quite some time ago where there was medication misadventure where a patient was prescribed something inappropriate and they ultimately died from that. And there was um, shared, uh, the legal finding was that there was shared blame and I think it was apportioned around the 60, 40, something like that. So it's pretty close to equally responsible. Our staff are acutely aware that you know our our role in the the um, health spectrum in Australia is the filter. So yep. you know, regardless of what the GPs have written, it's our responsibility to ensure that that is you know appropriate uh, and well safe at least. Yep. And certainly, uh, you know, that they would be back in touch with the GP if they had any concerns that something has been prescribed in either inappropriate dose or whether there may have been interactions that have perhaps been overlooked. One of the biggest challenges we deal with and GPs would be in the same boat is that patients often don't 
identify clearly what they're taking and what they're doing. And it's not necessarily surreptitious. They may just have forgotten. They may um, some herbal products which can have quite profound effects on certain medications. You ask them what they're taking they, because it's a herbal product. They, they don't consider that it's of any consequence, so they'll often neglect to mention that. So yeah. one of our roles is to try and unpack that and ensure that we have a very clear, accurate picture of exactly what the patient's doing. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, so um, so so it's a shared responsibility, which to me makes me think a relationship's really important. Just as you're going to test your processes internally as a pharmacy, in a way I think this starts with us really setting up those processes to have that relationship with pharmacy. Um, Jenny. Hi, thank you. I'm going to have to step out soon. I do apologise, everyone. I've got a meeting clash. Um, I just wanted to uh, say you know, thank you for all of this really useful uh, discussion. I think it, it, the medications add just another layer of complexity in the long story of, uh, of, of new things coming into the COVID space. And I think that that's really the point that we're at now where we've got um, medications, we've got a rolling uh, pandemic, and to be able to come together um, to sort out the systems issues so that it makes um, it easier for a person to get the care they need in a safe and a timely manner, no matter where they turn up to the, the system. And I think that um, uh, the GPHU is well positioned and forums like this, we can take away that to be able to work with those sticking points, like where, where are the pharmacies in your re region? Can we put that up on health pathways? Um, how do we get you in contact with a, a care team who might have access to a, a hospital pharmacist, for example, to do a more complex uh, medication review so um, thank you and thanks for letting me be part of this and please do reach out um, via email thanks jenny and we're going to come together for a town hall in uh, a few weeks time so some of what we're gathering now and some of these offline conversations that will go away after today and have will contribute to um, that that more formal offering as a town hall in a few weeks time and that's where you'll probably see jenny again next okay thanks jenny sorry to keep you late running late yeah Thank you. Can I just quickly add to um, yes. if any people are considering, if any of the GPs are um, considering prescribing Paxlovid and they're either unsure or not confident with some of the other medications involved, by all means, pick the phone up and ring one of the pharmacies and, you know, this, at least the manager there would be able to very quickly run through that interaction checker with them and just confirm whether there's any significant issues or not. Yeah, thanks. That's so good to know. And so I think we need to create that as an alternative. Another another pathway for support is ring the pharmacist. Again, build those relationships, ring the pharmacy. And Peter, thanks. I think um, your, your Ballarat GPs will probably have confidence in ring, ringing the Sturt Street branch is probably the um, message. Um, now, Jeff and Alison. Um, sorry, Gemma, we'll just go to the next slide. Jeff and Alison. Uh, I think Jeff was first and then we'll go to Alison. Oh, yeah. Good morning, everyone. So, just a, just a little bit of background, I guess, from the Bowen Health um, remote patient monitoring perspective is that, yeah, there, there is a bit of an issue with the numbers. So we're at the moment, we're doing all the, uh, or most of the antiviral assessment. We're getting about 30 a day that are dropping out of um, the COVID monitor system. So, so what's happening for us is that we're probably only getting to the priority group one and two because of the time taken. We'll assess everyone for Paxlovid, which... You know, it can take 30 minutes, 45 minutes per assessment, even though it's harder for us because we don't know the history or the meds um, or the pathology necessary. So we have to do a lot of chasing around. If they're not a set, if they don't meet that, then we'll obviously push them towards monopiravir 
obviously have to do the uh, consent with the patient as well, informed consent. So the problem is that, yeah, we're getting too many coming through our system for us to assess. So for the um, private group threes and fours, we're sort of trying to ask the GP to prescribe something out in general practice for those. And, and I guess one of the things that we've sort of come to think about, you know, is it better to get 80% of the patients with a less effective medication or 20% of the patients on a drug that is more effective? And I'm just wondering whether we can sort of think about that today because, uh, you know, there's this perception that molnupiravir is less effective, but if it's easier to prescribe, more available, um, less time in general practice to prescribe it, is that a, still a reasonable option, even though I know we're talking about Paxlovid today? So, Oh, thanks, Jeff. No, I think we are talking that... about we are talking about both. And, Gemma, do you mind jumping back to slide 10? Because I think what, Jeff, you know, we were really thinking about here is this inflection point that I guess mm. as, as Alison described of, um, you know, where, where do we really say that the, ben that the risk benefit favours us putting in all the effort or really trying to go for Paxlovid? And, and, and where do we say, as Jeff's describing, look, you know, like Mon as and Avin said a few weeks ago, is Molnupiravir, it's better than nothing. Like, let's just get them on something. Don't dally because it's all too complicated. Now, Nom is here. Nom, before we hand over to your formal presentation, I'm glad, thank you, welcome here. And um, and it's good to have you. I'm not sure how much of our um, running through the tools you saw. I'm not sure if you saw that we shared this. We were keen to hear your thoughts on this, this puzzle, weren't we, Alison? Good morning. Yeah. Good morning. Hi, everyone. Sorry, I did miss a lot of the initial conversation. Sorry, I had to no, drop, take your drop offs. Um, sorry, you just wanted me to comment on the prioritization table. That question that Jeff asks, and um, oh, sure. If yeah. I haven't. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> so, yes, I was definitely going to cover that as well, but I definitely agree with Jeff that um, the perception that Paxlovid, you know, is, is always going to be superior to. Um, molnupiravir, we're definitely trying to encourage, you know, thinking away from that um, and kind of along the lines of, as Jeff has said, an antiviral is better than no antiviral. And certainly in the setting of aged care outbreaks that we're managing at the PHU, where we have access to Paxlovid, but we would rather quickly get the molnupiravir started because it's on site, it's readily available. We don't have to go through all the drug interaction checks. A lot of the residents won't have had recent blood tests, for example, um, for us to work out if they do have renal impairment, liver impair impairment, et cetera. So we'd much rather give them molnupiravir straight off the bat um, within that five-day window than taking a few days, you know, figuring out if parts of it is going to be readily available. So I definitely agree with that approach that something is better than nothing. Great, because that's the thing. I think on that balancing efficacy and timeliness, it's good to hear what you're doing in practice because I think this is the piece that GPs are probably going to go, ah, this sounds really hard and complicated and we'll only through experience go through that uh, actually it takes several days to achieve yeah. this. Um, yeah. So I think that's a really important message that that actually, you know, and again, I don't know if Kate's still on the line because Kate's had to do a bit, a bit of prescribing in her Horsham, so rural um, nursing homes, you know, what ended up being the most, um, what's the word for this, expedient? It's a balance between efficacy and expedience. Yeah, yeah and look, I think that um, like one of the key things in the nursing homes was that you actually had stock of Ligevrio on site. And I think that this is sort of one of the areas where it really flags that whole system thing in that it's like if a patient doesn't test positive on a rat test and you've got to wait 
for the PCR test to be collected from the rural place, then to be delivered to pathology, then to go off for remote pathology. It's all those points in the system that mean that there's potential delays even before you've prescribed, called the pharmacy and said, hey, how long is it going to take for you to courier it to us? So I think in that case, like Paxlovid wasn't on the um, PBS when I was last sort of prescribing, um, but um, that's, that's sort of why it made it a lot easier to use what you had in stock. And I think that that's where having it sort of locally in the pharmacies is going to be really important. Um, and also um, sort of that's something that we're really advocating for at a state level is making sure that we've got rural and regional access in sort of hub-based settings so that we can get it out quickly to where it's needed. So kind of like what Peter's describing, Kate, so that there might be a, a commercial pharmacy that will be Yeah, a there hub. might be commercial pharmacies or we're looking as well at sort of how we could build relationships or have stock on site in, you know, some of the smaller health services um, that was there. So we've got lots of mechanisms that are being worked on at a bigger level, but I think at the smaller level in our individual relationships with pharmacies, um, that key point is sort of getting the result, getting the script into them so that then they can put the order in on a PBS so that they're not having to sort of put that expenditure through without yeah. knowing that it's a cheaper cost. Thank you. All right. Now, Alison, I'm going to come to you and then um, we're going to kick off your formal presentation and then we're going to kick it off with a question from Deb. So thanks for putting a question in, Deb, and I'm just going to give everyone a moment to, yeah, throw in your questions for Nom because um, I think what we'll do is we'll do Nom's presentation and then we'll go straight into Q&A. But um, over to you, Alison. Thanks. Just keeping in mind that all of our patients, if they've uploaded their, their um, well, we've all got access to care teams. So both Bowen Health and, and Ballarat Health Service have got COVID care teams. So particularly if you have a patient that you come across before they've gone through the um, departmental stratification process and been on COVID monitor and been called by us, if you come across one of your patients at this point who is immunocompromised or, you know, those priority ones and twos, according to this um, table that's on the screen currently, I think they're the ones at the moment, as we're gathering experience and confidence in prescribing this in the community, send them into us because we are the, these are the things that we, this is what we've been doing for, you know, the, however long Paxlovid's been available and sort of developed that, that um, uh, comfort with prescribing. And we actually have this relation, our relationship with our pharmacist. So, um, and we've been working really well with UFS. So thank you, Peter, for the work that we've been doing together. So what we're doing this week is where our, our, our hospital pharmacist is doing the assessment, but we're actually then providing the script to the UFS with the information saying, we've actually, already, our pharmacist's done this. This is the information we're giving to the patient about their medications. Really, where can you please dispense it for us? Because we've already invested you know we've done the back end of that just as everyone's capacity building so really Thanks. as and to re, re sort of reiterate what Jeff's saying really the patients that we would be wanting you um, in general practice to be looking at is that priority group three and four that might come across your desk before we get we, we meet them um, and say actually your day two you are um, th this is who you are um, you're eligible for molnupiravir I can provide you with a PBS script and let's get that going Okay, um, thanks, Alison. Um, and so I guess what well, I, I think what is important to remember is uh, that as we're capacity building, this is what's happening at Ballarat. I think, Jeff, um, you know, it might be different at um, 
Geelong. But I think it's really important, I guess, the point that Alison raises is that if you're not confident, do reach out. So the numbers will pop them up again at the end, uh, whether you're in Geelong, Ballarat or out through the region, check Health Pathways and, and reach out for support. So, um, you know, let's let's kind of not make this too hard. Let's see who we can um, access for support. Now, uh, I've just realised, sorry, before we come to you, Norm, I was going to um, get Naomi to give her presentation Um and then we'll go over to you. Thanks. I'm going to go super quick um, and skip most of what's on my slide here and go straight to the um, vaccination component. So there's a new recommendation from Atagi at the moment to um, talk about um, vaccination. Your next vaccination for COVID should be three months post-infection. Uh, so that might be changing the amount of people that's showing up for their next vaccination for you because there's a lot of COVID at the moment. There's also been a change for dose one and two of your mRNA vaccines. So at the moment, um, they have shifted both of them to eight weeks between first dose and second dose. And we're particularly looking at the, um, the males between 12 and 39 because we can we have the evidence now that suggests that the risk of um, cardiac conditions is much lesser leaving that dose between the eight weeks rather than that three or four week period. Uh, and just noting here that the changes in testing and isolation requirements um, have shifted out to 12 weeks. Um, but that also, um, if you have somebody within that um, 12 week period who um, has that COVID contact and has developed symptoms again, that there is that chance that they may have developed COVID again. Um, so please look in, into that as well. Um, but that's stretched out because it's less likely for it to be so um, and I think the rest everybody's got over we did a poll at the start of the um, presentation yeah um, let's share the polls yeah I think that would be great and that's so we've got are you prescribing oral antiviral th therapy for COVID-19 um, there's a 35% of you have said yes and 24% of no and then there's um, there's a few that weren't sure if they should be or shouldn't be so have we got the poll coming up on the screen is everyone seeing it uh, can we give a thumbs up, thumbs down? Can everyone see the poll? No. We sh we'll share that. We'll share that poll. I, don't, I think we'll know. Maybe we won't have time to kind of go through it granularly. Uh, I, I think just sharing it with the um, with the group is 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 sufficient in chat or something. Can we? But, so no. Can you see it now? No. Let's. So, but Gemma's shared it though. Yeah. Okay. It's, um, it's popped out as a, as an external pop up, so people may. Have, Oh, it might have gone somewhere else on your desk. All right, I'm yes. gonna I'm gonna quick. Let's quickly whip through. So it looks like it. I'm seeing that with some people are, are starting. There's about a third of you have started prescribing. About a quarter have started uh, have done Jeffrio, uh, um, and probably like what a fifth have done both or, or Paxlovid or both. Um, some pretty good confidence levels, which is great. A third of you are feeling confident prescribing Paxlovid, which is great. Um, and the rest. No one was very confident, but we wouldn't expect that. Confidence comes with time. Um, main barrier, not seeing enough positive patients. It's only a small amount of you. So really it was 20% was unsure of clinical guidelines, 20% don't have time to work through drug interactions, and 20, a quarter of you just weren't sure where to, to access its medication. Peter reminds us and let us know that, in fact, um, they were, the stock was quarantined. So it came on the PBS, but the stock was all quarantined up in Melbourne. Um, so they're only just getting it out into commercial pharmacies kind of this week. So that's probably why you weren't sure about where 
you could go, but that's starting to flow. And who do you call if you have a clinical question? Um, ID team, 50% seems to be the most popular thing. So that's really great if we've got those connections. Ballarat GPLU and Bowen GPLU, neck and neck at 12%. Um, and uh, and people were reaching out to the Bowen um, Public Health Unit as well for um, advice. And I think that's because Bowen's had that clinical role um, kind of. The good and news, now Bianca, where, is, mm. is that that's in line with the advice that's been provided to them. So yeah. Um, Everyone's doing the right thing. Awesome. Um, pick up the phone if you don't tend to pick up the phone if, you, if you'd like to. All right. Um, so, Naomi, anything more from you? No, I think that's, that's it for me. Let's get on to Nom. Beautiful. Thanks, Nom. Thanks. Thanks, Bianca. Um, I think most of this has probably already been covered, so I might just skip through very quickly. Um, so I just wanted to give a quick um, update on what the changes have been um, with the oral antivirals and just a bit of advice from us. So we all know what the main purpose of the antivirals is, which is basically to keep people out of hospital, stop them from the morbidity and mortality related to COVID. But I guess the important thing that sometimes people do forget is that it also does significantly reduce the um, viral load and how infectious people are. So particularly in high risk settings, that's something that we definitely encourage um, such as in the nursing home setting to reduce transmission um, in that environment. Additionally, we're obviously trying to avoid toxicity as well. So I'll just skip over this slide because this is just talking about the drugs, which we all are sounding familiar with. So Paxlovid and the Gebrio, um, and just to point out that there is a bit of a pill burden with both. So what has changed? So in terms of molnupiravir, We've now had this on PBS for the last two months. So it's good to see that some of you are getting comfortable with it and starting to prescribe it in um, general practice. And that's certainly from the public health unit point of view and also from the ID point of view, that's you know what we'd want to encourage. As the public health unit, we are trying to support clinicians in the community with prescribing because it is obviously very new to everyone. Um, so we do have um, the contact number, which I think has already been put up for our ID registrar that sits at the public health unit. Um, who's available, you know, seven days a week to be able to give any sort of advice with prescribing. Um, as mentioned um, a few times, we are strongly recommending very early initiation in the setting of HK outbreaks. Um, and it's been great to have GPs who look after these um, residents on board in terms of helping with that. Um, and as I said, in this particular situation, a lot of these HK facilities already have Molnupiravir on site, and so we would rather get something started early um, rather than trying to access Paxlovid, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's you know something we're trying to encourage. Paxlovid is obviously now on PBS as of the first of May, but we've been using it for the last two months um, in the hospital situation, and um, it definitely has been our preferred um, uh, antiviral for high-risk patients. The reason for that is that the initial phase three trials, as has been mentioned. Um, did have, you know, seemingly much better outcomes for Paxlovid. So an 88% um, relative risk reduction in terms of hospitalization and death versus about 30% with molnupiravir. It is important, though, that, you know, those are single trials. They are quite large trials. Um, but in terms of, you know, going forward, um, it probably will be that we'll start to get more head-to-head -head trials and bigger trials to actually see if there is such a significant efficacy um, difference between the two antivirals. So at this point in time, we certainly are just encouraging starting an antiviral and not getting too bogged down if you're not able to access Paxlovid. Um, in terms of some of the preliminary data, we've looked at um, some of the, uh, the patients that we started prescribing antivirals to. We probably have um, 
couple of hundred or a few hundred now. Um, and it's very preliminary data that we hope to be able to publish um, in the coming months. But the reassuring thing is we're seeing pretty good outcomes. So we're seeing um, people not ending up in hospital, not getting uh, complications from their COVID, and importantly, not getting um, significant toxicity. So we definitely have, have not had any major um, adverse events from any of the antivirals that we've prescribed. Um, some patients are getting mild side effects. Mostly it's just easier and other GI intolerance. Um, but so far, it's looking pretty good. Um, so in terms of the PBS criteria, I think you've probably covered this, but just to emphasize that there are some people that should basically always be considered um, for antivirals. Um, the, uh, this graph at the top here just shows that we consider age to be the largest risk factor in terms of COVID um, uh, hospitalization and risk. Um, and then there are obviously, you know, all the other high-risk comorbidities that we know. So just a reminder for everyone that the elderly, as well as the immunocompromised um, people that you're seeing, are really the people to be considering as most likely to have other risk factors that should be getting antivirals. So basically anyone that is moderately to severely immunocompromised um, will meet PBS criteria um, to be prescribed antivirals. Anyone over, over the age of 75 with a high-risk comorbidity, anyone over the age of 65 or um, over 50, if they're Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander with two risk factors, will be considered. Um, and it's important to realise, which most of you probably have seen, that in the PBS criteria, they've actually included um, things that were not included as high-risk um, in the sort of Victorian guidelines. So if you just live, live in an aged care facility or a disability care facility, that is considered a comorbidity in itself. So if you're 70, over 75 and live in an aged care facility, you straight off the bat meet criteria. You don't need to have, you know, those additional comorbidities. So that's something important to realise. And other um, neurological conditions like dementia, having had a stroke, um, cirrhosis is also in there and also just being geographically very remote is also a risk factor in itself. So just important, useful things that have been included in the PBS criteria. Thanks, Nam. No, sorry to interject for a second. I think That's I just okay. want to make, make um, mm. clear the thing that probably I I wasn't clear about and I hope GPs are, is mm. that <clears throat> under the kind of um, uh, current remote patient monitoring system, um, if someone's in a rack or I believe disability residential care, they're immediately referred to a GP yeah. pathway. Is that correct? Yeah. Right. yeah. So so yeah. when you describe that as a comorbidity, I think we need to really have that awareness. If you are, mm. if your patients are in racks and disability care, they're coming straight to you. And yeah. as you're describing, that's a really high risk, especially over 85, but in those other with a frailty and comorbidities, these are the yeah. crew that we really want to prioritise. Yeah. Yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. And then so the that, G yeah, sorry. No, no, go. Yeah, no, 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 go. Yeah, so that's definitely something that um we try and help with from the public health unit because we obviously do hear about outbreaks in these settings. So we often will flag with the facility, please contact the GPs as soon as you can to let them know if they're not aware that their patients have um, had a positive COVID test to get them prescribed antivirals. So you may get those phone calls from these facilities. That's it. And in, in, in essence, they're our responsibility, really, aren't they now? Yeah. Because they're yes. not the hospital's response. Okay. All right. right. Yeah. Okay. I think that's important for us to all be really clear about. And then the second piece was around geographic remoteness. And I think mm. that's really interesting, isn't it? Because mm. um, Kate described, I think, really nicely all the time lags that occur mm. in rural areas. Yeah. The risk of being remote can be the time to transfer to hospital if someone gets really sick. Exactly. And we've certainly seen that um, in some of the uh, outbreaks that we've managed, you know, in Portland and other um, more uh, regional areas where, you know, people are quite isolated and have, you know, had difficulty 
getting sent to hospital, being having adequate assessments in hospital, etc. So yes, that has been something that has been flagged. So if these people are coming to the attention of their GP, um, it is important if they do meet this criteria, you know, basically the older people with other comorbidities, um, if they are quite remote to prioritise them. Mm, we really need to streamline these pathways, don't we, as a region? Yes. Mm. Yeah. Okay, exactly. thank you. Sorry to interject. If you, no, no, yeah. thank you. Um, so I might go to the next slide. Yep, so in terms of what medications give, we've talked about this, but basically Paxlovid is our preferred if we can give it because of the high efficacy in clinical trials. But I think I've talked about, you know, some of the issues with that in terms of, you know, more trials are needed um, and any antiviral being better than nothing. So in terms of the major contraindications to think about with Paxlovid, renal impairment is one of them. Um, and I appreciate that a lot of the time some of these aged care um, residents may not have had re recent renal, um, uh, renal function checked, um, in which case you might just go straight to Legevria in that situation. But it certainly is contraindicated in people with a GFR less than 30. And remember that there is a dose reduction for people with a GFR that it's be that's between 30 and 60. Um, the other important contraindication is um, liver impairment with significant uh, uh, cirrhosis, Charles PC, and then also the CYP3A pathway that we've been talking about. So um, ritonavir being a potent in, um, inhibitor of that enzyme, it's important that any drugs um, that are highly metabolized by that pathway shouldn't be, shouldn't be, it shouldn't be given in that setting. Um, and then the contraindications, the rest of the contraindications for Paxavid overlap with the Legevrio contraindications, which are, you know, the obvious straightforward off the bat contraindications if there's a hypersensitivity to any of the active ingredients of either. Um, for pregnant and breastfeeding, they are contraindicated. And for children um, under the age of 18 who would other, otherwise qualify because of their comorbidities, also contraindicated. And I think we've talked about this um, app from the Liverpool group which is very useful, very easy. Most of the time you can get your patients checked for interactions to Paxlovid using this app within a minute. Um, and it will give you, you know, more information if it's needed. And at that point, that's when you might consider talking to your pharmacist if it's not clear from just the, the app. Um, I'll go to the next slide. So there are importantly situations to consider referring to us rather than just prescribing one of the oral antivirals that you have access to. Um, and that's because there are some intravenous alternatives like remdesivir and citrovimab that we might consider for specific high-risk groups. So the ones to flag to us are really the severely immunocompromised. Often they will have already come to us through their transplant physicians for it, et cetera. But um, we're talking about, you know, transplant recipients, um, hematological malignancy patients in particular, or those that are, you know, very significantly immunosuppressed and cannot have Paxlovid because it's interacting with one of their medications. With those patients, because of the efficacy data with um, molnupiravir, we would prefer to consider alternatives, um, usually remdesivir, but there are supply issues with that and also, you know, issues in terms of hospital beds, et cetera, and being able to access it. So we won't always take that option, but those are the ones to discuss with us to at least consider that option. And then also with breastfeeding and pregnancy, um, as well as children um, under the age of 18, as I've mentioned, um, the oral antivirals are contraindicated. Um, but if you have high-risk um, people in those groups, you want to refer further to us because we do have other alternatives. Um, but as mentioned, there are limitations in terms of supply that we might have for these drugs. And then also um, there is new data suggesting that some of them may not be as efficacious or some of the variants of concern. So we're not using citrovimab very much at all for that reason. Just to end, I just wanted to sneak this in here to um, remind people that 
we are talking about COVID and COVID antivirals, but the other, uh, other viruses are circulating. So this is um, an actual result of um, an elderly person um, at an aged care facility who was tested thinking they had COVID um, and they had, this was probably a COVID outbreak and, you know, do they need COVID antivirals? Um, but you can see here from her multiplex that um, COVID was negative, influenza was negative, which is the other important one that we always think about in aged care outbreaks, but she had para-influenza. Um, so we are going to see, see a lot more of this. So, you know, just reminding people to think about multiplex testing um, in the setting of respiratory symptoms, um, particularly where people are COVID negative. Um, and then also other antivirals are available. So we have Tamiflu for influenza. And with Tamiflu, you really want to give it very early in that 48 hour window period to the high risk um, individuals, particularly the elderly. Um, and just a reminder that for the other viruses, there aren't any antivirals for which there is evidence, unfortunately. Um, so it's really just um, the COVID antivirals for COVID and Tamiflu for influenza. Um, and I'll just end with um, a slide to just remind you of some of the resources. So I think we've already looked at the um, National COVID Clinical Evidence Task Force tools. Um, this is very helpful, takes you to really all the links that you need. Um, and then lastly, our PHU ID registrar is available on this phone number. Um, and after hours, this will get diverted to one of our ID registrars. So we are always available to answer questions about antivirals. Thanks so much, Norm. And so quick reminder, if you're doing multiplex and COVID, you're still in, you're wanting two swabs, aren't you? Yeah. Yes, that's right. And then quickly, um, Deb's question, can, once you start Molnupiravir, can you switch to Paxlovid? So I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily... Um, not because of, you know, toxicity or interactions necessarily, because if you look up the two antivirals against each other, they don't interact with each other. But it's more just, you know, if you've started an antiviral, um, I would just stick to, you know, what you started um, rather than muddy muddying the waters. We definitely don't have any evidence for any sort of switch strategies. So I'd probably just stick to the antiviral that you started. antiviral. And uh, yeah. just a reminder on how what were the difference in hospitalizations and was that based on Delta or Omicron? Um, our hospitalization data at the moment is based on just in the last two months of looking at us prescribing the oral antivirals. Um, and we haven't published that yet. Sorry, were you talking about our preliminary uh, data? Deb was asking, about... Deb asked us for a reminder, uh, just wanted you to reiterate the difference between hospital admissions between Paxlovir and Molnupiravir. Oh, sure, from the phase three trials. Yes. So that is looking at. I believe it's a bit of Delta and Omicron. I'm not 100% certain on that, sorry, but those um, trials were published earlier this year, so it would have been, you know, based on earlier. earlier and, and do you, do you recall, I'm sorry, I'm not sure, I can't, uh, do you recall the difference? Did you have the data? So it's, it's about 88% um, redu reduction, risk reduction for hospitalisation and death um, for Paxlovid and 30% for molnupiravir, yeah. same outcomes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And both of those were published in NEDGEM. Yep. Um, but Thanks. they would have looked at earlier parts of the the, um, the pandemic. I just yep. remember exactly. Okay. So Paxlovid yeah. clearly looks like it was different in those yeah. earlier. However, yeah. it's that balance as you describe between yeah. access, timeliness, um, complexity. You know, there's a lot of factors to remember. I guess yeah. what we're saying in a sense is um, we really need to put all the systems in play and streamline yeah. the processes so we can get people yeah. the better drugs and equitably yeah. across the region. And um, as I said, we're hoping to publish our data from the last two months um, in terms of what we've seen with antiviral prescribing. But as I said, we definitely have not been seeing, you know, people that have had Legevrio ending up in hospital. Um, we're not seeing that that failure, so to that's speak. Good news. So for that reason, 
Um, we don't have any reason to not to suggest that there's anything wrong with using molnupiravir. And I really do emphasize the point of just give an antiviral wow. and not to get too bogged down on trying to get access to Paxlovid. If you can get it, great. If you can give it, great. But if you can't, um, and it's not one of those groups that I pointed out that could benefit from IV, then do go ahead and give molnupiravir. Great. That's a great uh, message to finish on. Thank you so much for your presentation this morning and thanks to everyone who um, uh, pre both presented it but also for all the offline conversations that we've been having in preparation for this. We're coming back in three weeks with the town hall where we'll we'll kind of hopefully have a lot of this information cooked up and some ideas about how we'll streamline these pathways. So do reach out um, and, and, um, you know, and, and keep the conversation going in between. You can evaluate um, any other questions that you have. You can pop in that evaluation and we can bring come back to them. Um, and I want to let you know about the um, primary care Fresher, which is happening in June, get on and uh, register. And I would love to see some of you face to face. So I'm going to be um, facilitating day one. Um, so it'd be great to see. That'll be in Geelong. Um, but do come face to face because this is a chance to network. So we haven't been able to network live for a couple of years now. And uh, if you get on early, you'll get a posse. Uh, there's limited posies. Um, and next slide, we'll just keep whipping through um, because we're over time now. So, um, Kathy. Pop your um, question in the chat or um, jump onto the evaluation and we'll um, maybe have to come back to you next week, uh, next time. So um, here's all the ways that we communicate with you. There's podcasts, there's websites, there's videos and there's notes. Do um, take the opportunity to look through them. And the last bit is... Oh, yeah, I just popped this in. Jeff um, uh, included this. This was a drug, uh, a flow chart. Um, great. Okay, well, we'll keep in touch and um, and we'll see you in a fortnight. So we're going to fortnightly now and we're coming back with long COVID. We need cases. So do send us a case and we'll be reaching out to those of you who are our core group at ECHO and uh, wanting to hear who you're seeing with long COVID. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you in a fortnight's time. See you. Thanks for listening and come along and join the discussion next week. Google Westfic PHN Project Echo COVID-19 Pandemic Response Network and you'll find a way to register. By registering, we'll send you reminders each week and we'll let you know what's coming up in the sessions and you'll also receive our resource pack that includes notes, podcasts, webinars, slide decks and any resources mentioned in the discussion. Thanks for listening.